we should be worried that I just lost your audio, but you know. Hello, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies separated by thunderstorms, talking cloud, crushing candy, and technology. I'm Moira, and this is episode 28, recorded on the 19th of August, 2015. What's going on this week, dude? Another week in paradise, Dan. Another week uh, in paradise. I didn't think you were allowed to have a weeks in paradise, Scott. Uh, uh, no, I'm really not allowed to have nice things. That's why it rains every day. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of follow up. Uh, last week we seemed to get a couple folks that were amazed that we got it in in 37 minutes. So. I am I'm debating whether or not we should actually try and keep it that short in the future or if we should uh, keep it to an hour so that folks like Victor Villain can have something for a nice long run. Uh, you know, I don't want to give him too many ideas. You know, he, he came back and said he got some ideas for a blog post. So uh, if we keep him to one or two a week, then I think, you know, we'll be OK. So we, we, we might want to watch the time a little bit. Yeah, one or two hours. Good idea. Yep. 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 You got it. OK. Nailed it. Um, so uh, I went through the beautiful fun this morning of remembering how to change a password in Office 365. Not too painful, but uh, slightly painful to go back through and reset the passwords across all the different apps. So OneNote said, hey, Dan, how you doing? What's my password? And you know the Office apps, of course, all did the same thing. So uh, I don't know if you've gone through that pain, but it's definitely less fun than I thought it would be. Yeah, they forgot about you, didn't they? You know, they've made that whole process a little bit better on things like iOS. So if you change your password and you just go, say, edit it in Word, Excel and PowerPoint and everything else on iOS automatically pick up that new identity and they're ready to go. But for some reason, they can't do that on the desktop. I don't know what holds them back. Uh, I'd be curious if it had anything to do with OAuth and how they do authentication with the apps, but who knows? They're all supposed to be the same now, right? Universal, ADAL, they all got all that stuff going on. So you're telling me the desktop apps, it's just a web view that's wrapped up in a nice container? No, but they're going against the same things for authentication. It's all one big auth library, right? That's what ADAL is all about. One well, common true. core library to come through. You're the developer among us. You should. Ah, that's a good point. Good point. We should, uh, we should actually ask uh, Chris Johnson if anything like that exists in JavaScript. Mm, no js mm, there we go of course of course uh so yeah you know the one note stuff just kind of a kind of a pain um someday I, I think i'll maybe like it um no you know you should really look at switching away from OneNote. evernote's beautiful and there's this great little app called alternote that you can buy and it's just a couple of bucks and it makes evernote absolutely beautiful so it takes out all the things that actually like make evernote kind of annoying like work chat and reminders and presentation modes and things like that and it just lets you write and take notes and you can take notes in markdown or rich text like they do and at some point they're going to have full support for uh proper markdown like like 
the extended markdown and things like that. And they're going to have iOS and uh, other apps someday. So that'll be kind of fun too. But it is very pretty. Alternate. The beautiful OSX note-taking app for Evernote. So I see that it's a whopping seven dollars in the uh, in the Apple Mac Store, App Store. Uh, is there anything out that out there like this for our, our friendly neighborhood uh, iPads or iOS devices? Not right now, but the same company plans to release uh, iOS versions in September uh, or fall twenty fifteen. So they've got a new release that's supposed to be coming in September, and then hopefully iOS follows right behind that. So I, you know, I can schlep it through Evernote on iOS and things like that, but it is a little bit heavy on the desktop. You know, they they tend to throw a lot of stuff at you depending on your subscription level and everything else. So, you know, this was a nice way to cut it back and just make it nice and pretty, and it supports tags and nested tags and colors and all those kind of things, and it has super quick search, and it generally makes Evernote uh, a little bit easier to use if you actually just use it as a writing device. So does it have the ability to uh, drag and drop photos in? Uh, yeah, so it has a full-rich text editor, so you can just pull things over and uh, yep, highlight and link, and yeah, you can put stuff in there, absolutely. Hmm. I wonder if, uh, I wonder if, uh, Microsoft has taken a peek at per- perhaps buying these guys. Probably not, since it talks to Evernote, not OneNote. Mm. Well, I mean, that would be a, a growth opportunity for them. I mean, they bought uh, Wonderlist to compete with Office 365 tasks, right? Did they? Well, maybe. Mm, I don't think anybody could tell you why they buy anything they buy. They buy it to make, to enrich our lives, Dan, and make them better. So... Uh, what was the name of that uh, company? The Pixel something or other that's now the Surface Hub? Mm, Perceptive Pixel. There we go. I would not question uh, question them on that at all. I, I like I love those things. Yeah, they're pretty cool if you need an 80-inch touchscreen that if it falls over, it's going to crush your body and kill you. <laughs> Have you ever seen the support themes those things are on when they wheel them into the room? They're crazy. Uh, so I've seen the Perceptive Pixels... Um, in uh, I guess it's the Reston MTC. Yep. Um, I have not seen if they've updated them to the Surface Hubs. The Perceptive Pixels, though, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, those things are plasma monitors, I believe. Yeah, they're pretty honking. Well, they're honking and they're hot. So uh, when we do the uh, SPSDC event in Reston, uh, which congratulations on being selected to speak. Uh, they are definitely, uh, yeah, I mean, those things, they warm up the room to the point where that we typically have to leave the doors open. So, yeah, uh, well, it's always nice to have a built-in heater. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, so I don't know, uh, one note, maybe someday it'll look as beautiful as alternate, but for the time being, uh, I guess we will just have to just live the life we live. Yeah, no, it's 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 never going to do what you want it to do. You should just switch today. Uh, no, so I guess uh, another app that you kind of brought to our attention this week is the Resolutionator. Tell me more about that. Uh, so you and I use a little app for swapping back and forth between monitor resolutions on I, uh, OS X called Display Menu, right? 
Um, so it's handy. You throw it in bartender and it just sits up there and it, you know, you hook your Mac up to anything like you go do a presentation and you want to switch modes, things like that makes it nice and easy. You flop back and forth and, and do all those things. So resolutionator does exactly the same thing. Um, but one of the key things it does is it has a hotkey. Uh, so you can bind a custom hotkey to it and then flip back and forth uh, just with a nice little key command. So uh, if you're into not having all the clicks and things like that, uh, might be worth a couple bucks for it uh, to pony up. And the company that makes it many tricks, they make a bunch of other things. They make like some uh, some window management apps and things like that for OS X. Like if you ever heard of like uh, Desktop Curtain or Moom, uh, they run through and, and do that one. So they have a bunch of handy little utilities and this is their latest one. I, I see they also have one named uh, Usher. <laughs> yes. Uh, you you going to sue them or? No, no. I think it's uh, I think it's kind of cute. Yeah, always fun to have little tips and tools and things like that. You know, I'm really hoping that Microsoft will release a uh, an app to remove other apps, like the garbage that they threw into Windows 10, like Candy Crush. Did they really? No, no, I'm saying I'm, I, I hope they would, since now that Candy Crush is included in Windows 10. Is know, it really? You, absolutely. It, no it, was, it was one of their... Uh, show off apps, right. For being able to do the porting from iOS and Android straight to windows. Uh, so it was kind of one of those, the uh, keystone apps that, that was built on that, uh, built on that platform and ready to, to go. So, uh, I, I love, uh, there, there's a website out there, addictive tips. They had an article, you know, how to remove candy crush from windows 10. So because it's one of the baked in apps, you can't just, you know, right click on the tile and say uninstall. You actually have to bust out PowerShell and do the uh, remove AppX package thing, which is just epic, right? <laughs> Here, you want to get rid of this app? Here's some handy-dandy PowerShell. Go for it, consumer. Have fun. Huh. So if I go on my Windows 10 box and I type in Candy Crush, it tells me to go to the store and it's not installed. Well, you're on Windows 10 Enterprise. No, I'm on Windows 10 Pro. Oh, you should be on the home version. And schlepping it like the rest of us. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. <laughs> oh, come on. You can do it. Uh, true. Uh, I'm going to guess that probably the majority of Americans or people of the planet Earth um, and any Martians that happen to be using our software uh, aren't going to go through and do this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so pro and enterprise are spared from it and, you know, it's just home that has it, but you know, I like, I happen to be running home on that little deviate that we all love so much. Um, so yeah, candy crushing it away. Nice. I, uh, I will not be installing the home version anytime soon. Yep. It's, it's pretty awesome. So, you know, if you want to remove it, it's just a little bit of PowerShell Mm. handy, handy dandy. Like everything else. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, what else you you, want to talk about all the fun stuff that happened this week with a couple of different technologies? (laughs) Do I ever? Uh, yeah. So to be honest, I've been kind of offline for the past week, which has been kind of strange because that means, uh, the only time that I see news is typically in the waking or, you know, hours right before I'm the minutes before I close my eyes to wake up the next morning. Um, with my, uh, you know, my phone tightly in grip to 
read through uh, what's going on. But uh, a couple cool things have been going on in the Azure world, um, primarily. And this one I know you probably look at and say, eh, whatever. Um, but for those of us in the DC metro area that work with Azure, um, very cool to see that uh, Microsoft announced today that Azure uh, had completed four major milestones for their Azure government platform. Um, primarily the two, or I guess all four of them are pretty cool. Um, but uh, apparently it is now FedRAMP moderate provisional, uh, FedRAMP, <coughs> excuse me, it has a FedRAMP moderate, moderate uh, provisional authority to operate. Um, it has the DISA level two provisional authorization, um, as a HIPAA. So health world, uh, business associate agreement, which I think they had for the commercial cloud as well. Yep. That had already, that was already in place on the commercial cloud. Yep. Yeah. And then support for federal tax workloads under IRS publication 1075. That's the one that, uh, you know, I kind of look at and I'm like, uh, what, <laughs> um, but essentially, it's uh, the ability to process federal tax information can be done on Azure government now. And I don't know if that was one that uh, was on commercial. I think that might have been something they did just for this. But I don't know. It's, I've never seen that one on commercial. I've never least. heard of that one. <laughs> um, Floating yeah. through the trust center. Yeah. And I think the, uh, the DISA level two uh, PA, as they call it, the PA, um, that provisional authorization, I think that might have been just for the government one as well. But uh, kind of cool if you go out to the Azure blog, it's out there. Uh, we have a show for it in the show notes. Uh, Scott, do we? Oh, man, show notes. Where, where do people find these things? Uh, so they can go to the pub and they can tip back a drink and that's where they will find everything. So in this case, we are on episode 28. So they could just go to pub.brewery.fm forward slash brewery zero two eight. And then they would see all these wonderful notes that we put together. And they'd also be slightly tipsy. Yes. Well, that that's kind of the point. Hmm. Lovely. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's good times. Um, also, uh, yeah, I think we knew this was coming, but, uh, you know, windows 10 got deployed, uh, back on July 29th, everybody went and turned on their NS five and noticed it started blinking red and all of them turned against them. And, oh wait, that's, that's a wonderful movie. Um, but, uh, the Azure group now also supports, uh, windows 10 backup using Azure backup, which I thought was, uh, pretty cool as well. So, uh, you know, we've talked about in the past having, uh, the ability to backup, uh, windows servers and whatnot to Azure, um, and have that as like a disaster recovery spot where, you know, if your on-premises system goes down and you need to restore it quickly, you can just re-download the bits, um, or, use uh, a tricky way of restoring it back into Azure. Um, but apparently you can now take a backup of your Windows 10 box and put it up in Azure. So for those, you know, small businesses or businesses that are looking to do things a little bit differently, um, I could see them, you know, actually doing this where they set up scripts to automatically go out and grab folks data and drop it off uh, in the background for, uh, the ability to keep all their stuff, uh, you know, secure and backed up. Yeah, well, so this doesn't even need to be a script thing, right? Because it's the client backup agent. 
So the agent that's been uh, that you're able to deploy to server workloads, you've been able to deploy that to some client OSs as well for a little bit now, like Windows 8.1 and uh, you know things like that. So this just brings client support to Windows 10. And basically, it's go ahead and do that agent deployment, and then uh, it's configured in exactly the same way. So you get all the same features that you had uh, pretty much across desktop and server in the past. So, you know, do you want to have data encrypted? Uh, You know, how do you want to handle encryption? Do you want it encrypted before it leaves your premises? uh, and before it even gets to Azure, do you want to wait till it's on the other side? How long do you want uh, retention to be for your backups? Uh, you know, how do you want to handle restores, things like that? Um, and then, you know, the agent's nice because it actually lets you go ahead and handle, you know, those one-off restores as well of, of files. So if you've protected a container like a secondary data drive or something like that, Uh, you can just go ahead and install this and run things up and back everything up to the same storage account and then restore piecemeal based on that. So um, always nice to see, you know, the the additional support come through. So now if we've got this, hopefully that means they're working on Azure Backup for Server 2016 because, you know, we just had TP3 of that. So uh, hopefully, you know, we get a little bit closer to just having all that stuff in line uh, when it comes out. So it's ready to go. Yeah, no. And you, you mentioned the, the windows server V next, uh, I didn't realize tech preview three had come out. I'm going to have to go download that and play around with it this weekend. Yeah. There's all sorts of stuff. So, uh, I believe TP three and, uh, also, uh, TP three for nano server came out. Um, so you can, so you can do some cool things with that. So nano has a, uh, a new little console and uh, some other stuff going on in it, but you know that's that's it's a little bit of a digression. So uh, you know, so you mentioned backup. Um, one of the other interesting things they did on top of the release of this uh, client, the, the the backup agent basically, and, and providing support for Windows 10, is they upped a bunch of the numbers behind the backup service. So. Uh, with Azure Backup, you can do all sorts of different things. Uh, you can have, um, you know, a SQL database going into Azure Backup. You can have uh, an, a, a server going in. You can have a specific data drive, things like that. Uh, maybe you want to uh, send up databases from uh, one of your on-premises workloads, or maybe something you host in IaaS, like. Uh, SharePoint or or something like that, right? So those are all SQL databases. So um, they can be sent up that way as well. So uh, one of the underlying technologies of Azure and and, uh, the virtual machines and kind of the hard disks and everything is VHDs. So those virtual hard disks and uh, uh, being that they're built on top of that. So Azure Backup uses uh, the latest and greatest VHD X technology. So uh, that being the case, the maximum size for a VHDX file uh, is on the order of 64 terabytes. So pretty decent, right? Um, so basically what the backup team has come and done is they've enabled the ability to come through and basically do uh, 54, 53, 54 terabyte uh, backups. Uh, so if you have a database, like a really large database, that's 50 terabytes, more power to you. Cause that was really fun. Um, and you want to spend six years backing it up every six years. Uh, you know, that will be great. 
so you can go ahead and now ship those super large data sets uh, straight up to the Azure backup service. So, um, you know, unfortunately, they can't offer the full 64 terabytes because they lose a little bit of space in their files the way they do backups. Uh, they actually reserve a bunch of space for uh, what they call operational metadata. So uh, that wonderful data about our data that actually lives as part of that backup as well. Um, but yeah, so now you have the ability to ship, you know, 53 terabytes in a single file uh, up to an Azure backup, which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, 63 terabytes. Let me just go pull that off my QNAP and yeah. 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 Uh, so, so there's a couple of requirements for it, right? You got to be using the latest backup agent. Uh, you might want to take a look at things like retention policies and, uh, you know, how you're actually handling uh, all those bits and pieces in there. But um, it is there. It's supported through uh, DPM. So it's in uh, the latest rollup. So uh, update rollup six or higher for DPM is going to have this support with the backup agents and everything. So um, pretty neat to see it growing and, uh, you know, just uh, ups that consumer offering a little bit more. Uh, I don't think consumers are going to be backing up 64 terabytes, but okay. Well, uh, you know, you keep making this distinction between the government and the consumer side. So this is definitely on the consumer side. Yeah. Yep. Yep. This, this isn't this isn't the government stuff. You don't get fun access to stuff like this in Azure government because there is no Azure backup. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah. Whatever. Okay. Yep. Someday. Somehow. Somewhere. Um. <laughs> uh. So this morning, uh, about six a.m. This is a nice transition. Yeah. Uh, this morning at about six a.m. I was uh, fiddling with Twitter or Tweetbot. I still use it on the iOS device. Don't judge. Um, and I noticed something from Isaac Stith about, uh, I guess, uh, some of the SharePoint 2016, um, I guess, just uh, some of the things that he's kind of noticed out there and speculation and whatnot. So he put up a little blog post uh, out on SharePointEvolved.com. Um, but one of the things that was on there was a news article or actually a KB article about cloud hybrid search capability in SharePoint server 2013. And I guess during ignite, they announced this, that they would be adding in another service app that allows you to set up uh, a lot of the searching capabilities, a heck of a lot easier, sort of, uh, with SharePoint server 2013 and with office 365 so that you can actually do, uh, some of the hybrid stuff without having to go through quite as much pain. There's still pain uh, to be able to, you know, pull in your indices and show content uh, either in the cloud or on prem, obviously being in the cloud, you get a little bit more granularity of information, but uh, more interesting is the note that they have there that says this functionality will be available as a public preview on September 7, 2015. Yep. And it links to just a connect site that is actually closed down. So you need an invite to get in there and, and do whatever. But so, so that KB article actually came out with the August CU that dropped uh, late last week, I believe. 
Um, so, so it's been sitting out there for a couple of days now. I don't, I, I was surprised more people didn't bring up that, Hey, there's a dead link to just Microsoft connect. And what are we supposed to do? Uh, we're just going to wait until September. Cause that's probably actually August in a Microsoft calendar someplace. Yeah. So uh, you, you mentioned this came out with the August CU and, uh, it's kind of funny cause they did a revision on it, I guess. Um, so it was revised back on the 12th. So last Wednesday, uh, just after we went to recording, it uh, seems to have been revised. Yep. So, yep, it, it, it's, it's been out there. But, you know, September's the new August. Yep, 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 yep. Quite true. Just, just like orange is the new black. Mm. Wait, what? Yeah. No. Uh, don't worry about it. It's all, it's all very hard to keep up with. Is that on the Netflix? Uh, I should check that out. Mm-hmm. Yep, Still yep, going yep. through uh, Parks and Rec first, but you, you know Isaac also pointed something else out too. I think, or at least I think it was him. So uh, if you go and are you talking about the uh, the irony? Yes. Yeah, so so if you go and register for the Office pre-release program, uh, it is actually hosted in an office, what appears to be an Office 365 public website, which, as we all know, has been deprecated. So. Uh, good on the office team to use a dead technology to flaunt how well their product works. Uh, you know what, though? I think that pre-release program that they've uh, got out there, I think that thing's been around for, for quite a while. So I can't fault them too much. I mean, that's like you know yelling at somebody for using SharePoint 2010. What are they going to do when the site goes away at the end of the year? Well... Scott, Scott, Scott. You know, n- nobody's going to notice. It- it'll be fine. Nobody uses that stuff anyway. Yeah, I mean, I-, I noticed that, I guess, a while ago. I didn't think, I, you know, I didn't put two and two together, but I remember when Bill Bear put that up on his blog uh, a long time ago and said, hey, anybody that's interested in uh, being a part of pre-release stuff, uh, <laughs> you can sign up. Doesn't necessarily mean we're going to take you, but you can sign up. And I think I, I went and signed up for it a long time ago and I was not selected. So what was me? Eh, it happens. Yeah, I know. What are you going to do? Um, so one other cool Azure thing that uh, actually just popped today into GA. Uh, so being that you were offline, you probably haven't heard too much about it. Yeah, you got your filter on, don't you? Oh, crap. I got to go get that. <laughs> and too late for that now. Uh, so uh, in the uh, Azure SQL database engine, uh, they went ahead and GA'd row-level security. Woohoo! Yep. So so this is actually, uh, it's kind of been out there in preview and, and doing whatever, and now it's just available for everybody to use. So uh, the actual, like, the, the really neat thing about these kind of things, so like dynamic data masking, which we've talked about, and... Uh, uh, row level security, so uh, RLS, because we we needed an, another acronym, right? Uh, is basically that uh, everything gets filtered on the server side, so we end up with these conditional predicates, basically that can uh, block or deny access to data um, on the fly. So uh, you know they mentioned some uh, key use cases, which is actually really nice to see in an article, you know, about something like this. So. Um, they talk about things like uh, hospitals being able to create a database security security policy uh, that would only allow nurses to view data rows for their patients. 
Um, so yeah, something like that is pretty cool, right? You know, you can actually guarantee that they can only ever see the data that they need to see, um, because you're getting everything trimmed on the server side. So kind of like SharePoint search or, uh, you know, some of the exchange searches and things like that, you're, you're going to be trimmed back to, uh, just the things that you have rights to see. Um, and because these clauses are basically where clauses, uh, in a SQL statement, you can get really pretty, uh, pretty complex with them, right? Um, so you can actually have, um, business process logic or, or, you know, your actual business logic of your application. If you want some of that to live on the server side, it totally can, or it can just be something simple, like show me things, um, you know, where the ID is between, uh, this and this. Um, so it's another form of access control. It sits at that database layer, um, so basically, uh, you know, this is the introduction of predicate based access control, uh, to the SQL side of things and, uh, it, really cool, powerful, uh, offering, um, which, uh, you know, I haven't played around with SQL server 2016 too much. Um, but this article that they, uh, threw out there is actually, it's for both SQL server 2016 and, uh, Azure SQL. So, uh, hopefully that has it as well. Hmm. I uh, haven't played with any of that jazz either, so I'm going to have to dig into that at some point, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's it's all very neat kind of functionality to uh, see things uh, start to pop up. You know, it, again, so let's take some of the heavy lifting where it makes sense off the application side of things. So now if you think about an application that might have had to return 5,000 rows of data and then filter and sort and do a bunch of other things to maybe uh, cut a data table down or something else that was returned from a SQL query. Uh, now all it's got to do is actually say, give me the data uh, that I'm allowed to see. And you, you know, the server is going to hand it off to you and you're, you're going to be all set and good to go. It's uh, typically what we call boo to the yaw. Boo to the Oz, is, is, is that what it's referred to? Uh, that's what the cool kids call it. Gotcha. I see. Well, you know, uh, so another one of those things that's that's out there and uh, all happy-go-lucky. Yeah, so speaking of happy-go-lucky, uh, what do you think about Docker? Docker. Uh, you know, I played around with it a bit, and the more I play with it, the more I can get behind it. Uh, the containerization thing still mm, living in kind of the SharePoint land or some of the office server land side of things that we live on. Uh, containers are really never going to be a part of our lives, right? Like SharePoint, they've said, isn't going to be a containerized application. You're, you're not going to be able to install it in containers. It's not going to be supported, things like that. Um, but if you're just doing really simple websites or uh, you know, one of the other things, uh, I've seen it used for a bit is, uh, just doing like really quick, like node deployments and having these full on, uh, just little clusters of things sitting out there. Um, it, it becomes a hugely powerful tool. Yeah. So, I guess I've kind of been looking at it the same way, just in being able to, uh, kind of like you mentioned, uh, using Node.js or, other technologies uh, that tend to, uh, you know, work in that same fashion, um, where they've got multiple worker nodes, you know, taking on little pieces of work and whatnot. 
Um, definitely cool technology. Um, I think it's wild to me though. And you kind of mentioned this a couple minutes ago, uh, the windows server 2016 preview, um, has container support. Yes, Um, it does. So, well, uh, it's starting to get the windows container support, right? So there's been support or tooling to manage and, uh, interact with Linux Docker containers, yep. uh, and now the Windows Docker containers are starting to see the light of day. So this is the other side of the equation. So I think they announced a bunch of this back at Ignite as well. Yeah, but uh, it's just it's neat to actually see it coming into fruition. Um, a lot of things, you know, in the past. I'm not saying this is necessarily Microsoft because I see Apple doing it sometimes as well, um, as well as. Uh, folks at other tech conferences where they have all this awesome stuff that they show off at a conference and then it never actually sees the light of day. So the fact that uh, Microsoft has made this commitment to containerization of, uh, you know, apps and whatnot, um, it's pretty cool to see, uh, see Docker making its way in. And uh, I guess they, they mentioned that Hyper-V containers are not yet there, but Uh, At some point down the road, they would uh, be doing that as well as, and this is probably the cooler part, uh, Visual Studio and Visual Studio Online having the ability to uh, make use of Windows Server containers. Mm -hmm. So the tooling is there, which is pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, And, you know, the tech is starting to make its way out. So uh, I'm definitely seeing more and more reasons to, uh, you know, consider the Windows cloud and windows uh, operating platform is kind of the home for whatever the heck you want to run on top of it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, this is another case where maybe if you fall back to some AWS terminology, it it helps uh, clarify and make things a little bit easier. Right. So uh, if you think of containers as just tasks, so a container is something that is going to execute a single task, right? Uh, Now, when you think about task-based architectures and other things, you start to get into uh, microservices and kind of different ways of uh, building out your backend for really going for kind of cloud-first scalable applications, right? Um, So... Having the ability to do this, is it's going to be one of those things where you're going to be able to come into a product like Windows Server on-premises or uh, Azure, and you're going to be able to say, all right, I really need to build out just entire uh, clusters or farms of task workers for uh, you know these given workloads. So as long as the workloads uh, are going to be able to be executed within those task workers, then there, there's no reason that you can't have you know, tens of thousands of them out there uh, doing things for you. Um, one of the one of the really, uh, I, I think, interesting things that they're going to have to come around and come to grips with um, is how they're going to enable and give everyone access to um, monitor and also uh, kind of log and, and get the telemetry out of those uh, containers. Uh, so they can right size them and and get them going. And you know, again, this is another area where uh, companies like AWS have kind of been moving ahead and saying, "Hey, uh, you know, we've supported uh, Docker containers for a long time uh, on our service. Uh, so now we understand how people are using them. 
let's go ahead and put things like uh, cluster metrics in place and um, spin those things back through CloudWatch and some of the other reporting mechanisms. So, you know, maybe you want to uh, view real-time metrics for uh, an entire cluster of EC2 instances, and each one of those EC2 instances hosts uh, X number of containers on top of them. Um, and then, you know, they try and give you predictive analytics because maybe you say, mm, maybe you have uh, an EC2 instance that's running in uh, something like a large and another one that's running in a medium, um, but they're all running task workers and, and, and uh, hosting those containers, right? So how do you right size across multiple EC2 instances of different sizes and uh, you know, what kind of metrics are you going to want to see back? And, you know, how do you view things like uh, CPU util or memory utilization uh, across a cluster of instances, which is really uh, basically a cluster of a cluster, right? Because you've got all these little instances in a cluster, and then each one of those instances is hosting uh, multiple containers within it. So uh, I hope that the Azure team uh, and the Windows Server team put some thought into how that data is going to be surfaced back. Because uh, ultimately, you know, th this is another one of those things where you give somebody a new shiny tool and they run away with it. And, and then you come back later and you go, uh, that didn't work the way I wanted to because maybe somebody didn't understand the technology or they didn't have uh, all the data they needed to be able to tweak it to where it needed to be. Yeah, I guess uh, I would hope that they would start to figure out how they can use make use of operational insights to hopefully provide that uh, that dashboard of information for folks. Yeah, I, I'm just hoping they go a little bit above and beyond because it is a different mindset. You, you know, it, it's it's like I said, it's kind of like a cluster of a cluster. So uh, in that regard, you've got to go down a level, and then you've got to be able to abstract at a higher level as well. Yeah, I guess uh, to me, it reminds me of the days when uh, we would run uh, VMware Workstation and then we'd run vSphere inside of that so that we could learn how to you know, configure and operate vSphere. And then we'd run an instance of VMware inside of the vSphere. Wow, that was deep. <laughs> Inception. It, it was funny when you'd start looking at how you were actually you know, creating storage volumes and you'd go, huh. I just took two hard drives and made them into a virtual disk that actually thinks it's one full hard drive. Whoa. Back in the good old days. But, uh, yeah. Um, so what else do we have going on? What else is shaking? Well, I think we can close out since I started taking us down the AWS path anyway. Uh, there was some new stuff on that side, which, uh, has come out over the last couple of weeks, which we haven't talked about. So, uh, the first one was the thing I just mentioned, right? So we had the, uh, container service has gained support for all these new metrics like CPU util and mem util, um, across, uh, your Docker clusters, uh, within, uh, AWS. So that's all really pretty cool. Um, and all that data, you know, flows through CloudWatch and, and goes to the back end. So uh, one of the neat things that they added to CloudWatch recently uh, was a new action. So you can actually uh, have CloudWatch go ahead and uh, reboot your EC2 instances for you. Uh, so in the past, you know, uh, maybe you would have something like, a, you know, whatever your metric for a status check was, you um, you know, you ran out of memory or 
something something else, right? Uh, so now you can actually have CloudWatch do that for you, and then based on uh, you know rules and metrics around how many times that thing fails, um, let's just go ahead and reboot my instance for me, uh, which is really nice because now it's even more hands off, and uh, you really don't have to do anything with it. So you're going to set up what you expect the rule to be. So, you know, what is the thing that's got to fail repeatedly? So service X dies twice kind of thing, right? Like service manager kind of thing. Um, and then that's it. You, you just have your alarm. And once your alarm kicks off, it will go ahead and reboot your instances for you. Hmm. Now you don't like that one? No, it's it's pretty cool, pretty wild. Uh, I wish those tools existed five years ago. <laughs> Don't you wish something like that existed in Azure? Like, hey, just reboot my server when it stops, please. Or well, you, you know, when when the RDP gateway dies and I'm not going to be able to get in there until I reboot it anyway, just go ahead and kick it for me. That would also, you know, entail that uh, it knew that my my virtual machine stopped working. Uh, they do know that. Well, do they? Yes, they do. Uh, they know. It, well, yeah, I'm sure that they know, but do they know? Uh, you know, they, they they always know. That's a question we should probably ask Kirk Evans about. Uh, yeah, him or Corey Sanders, one of them. Somebody yeah. would be able to answer that for us. So, um, and all right, so we got that. We got that. Uh, and one of the other new things uh, that AWS introduced was. Uh, you now have the ability to join Linux instances to your uh, AD services. So uh, you've got two kind of two types of uh, AD services uh, or in the AWS directory services. Uh, so you've got the the simple AD where there's this LDAP compliant thing that AWS is running for you, or you can do the full blown uh, directory service, which proxies all the way back to your on premises directory and uh, you know, so within the simple AD now, uh, you can go ahead and uh, just go ahead and uh, join uh, Linux instances in there. So if you're doing things like uh, Kerberos in there, uh, that's it. Uh, you know, you can go ahead and set that up and then you can go ahead and SSH into your instance and uh, you're all set and ready to go. So uh, pretty cool to see something like that added as well. So, uh, you know, that simple AD service. Uh, continues to be pretty impressive. Um, you know, and again, one of those things that it does that Azure doesn't is you have the ability to add computers to those domains. So whether those are uh, Linux instances or they are Windows instances, you know, you can go ahead and add them into that uh, simple directory, which is uh, uh, a little bit different than the way that Azure Active Directory works with um you know, just users and groups and application principles and service principles, things like that. True, but you can always join a machine to Azure using Workplace Join. Yeah, uh, not the same for doing your servers and things like that. But uh, yeah, I know, I know. You can't go in and create a couple IaaS boxes and Workplace Join them. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a little bit different. So, uh, you know. Uh, Hopefully we'll see some of that stuff pop up on the roadmap at some point about, uh, here, let's actually put machines into Azure AD and then let's give them GPOs and then that'll make Dan happy. Yep. 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 Uh, so I'm not gonna, I know you'll probably get angry about this, but, uh, DevOps. What about it? Uh, interesting, 
interesting model for getting work done. It's kind of funny. The, the more and more I dive into this world and read up on it, uh, the more and more I look at just kind of the way that we as IT pros do work and how we've kind of refined the way we work. And in some ways, we're doing DevOps without realizing it because, yeah. But anyway, uh, the uh, been reading a, a book. You know how to read? I know, it's crazy. Um, I I do. I, I can I can do the read. Um, but uh, I've been reading this book called The Phoenix Project, which is it's uh, kind of corny. I won't argue with that, but it's. Uh, it's basically about a uh, IT organization that is trying to develop a product and their internal operations, uh, their development team, design team, all that jazz. And one of the things that uh, they kind of talk about, which was just kind of a good reminder of how we as IT pros tend to do things and how we uh, you know, muddle through our, our work every day is how they define work. And I know typically for me, uh, you know, it's a challenge to be able to balance all the different uh, requests that we get. Uh, but uh, more more so, you know, if we were actually working for like a product company, like cool people like Adam Levithan, um, we'd have to, you know, deal with kind of the four different types of work where it's, you know, the business projects, so the marketing side of things, uh, the internal IT projects, actually making sure the infrastructure is working, uh, and then changes other groups and whatnot are making to the environment that might impact my product. Um, and then, you know, the unplanned work because Murphy's law, but just, a you know, just kind of a little bit of a shout out. I know you and I both read, uh, uh, the Martian. Um, I'm actually picking up a copy of what the dog saw. Uh, Phoenix project's been an, an interesting read on DevOps and it organization. Yeah, IT is always this evolving landscape, right? So, uh, you know, it's it's always very funny to me when when you take a step back and uh, you know you know there's all sorts of uh, dogma within uh, the the places we work and and operate and everything else. So, uh, you know, even with like project management and things like that, and you know, you've got oh, you know, we're an agile shop or uh, we only do waterfall here. And, uh, you know, these are all just things that really equate to, um, how are we going to do our jobs and how are we going to get stuff done? Right. So as long as we get stuff done, which really is what DevOps is about. So, so DevOps isn't so much a, a methodology as it is a way for everybody to take a step back and say, uh, here's how we're going to get stuff done today. Uh, we've recognized these deficiencies in the way we got done, got stuff done in the past, and this is what we think we can do to make it better in the future. So uh, maybe that means that people actually need to talk to each other. Imagine that, you, you know, like uh, a lot of the things that I see, you know, like DevOps, it's it's really uh, it, it's it's more about a communication methodology than an operational methodology or product methodology or anything else, right? It's let's get everybody to the table and let's get everybody talking. So, you know, uh, heaven forbid your developers should have access to your uh, IT pro staff and, uh, oh, you know, it's the end of the world if your IT pros have to learn how to script and uh, interact with developers a little bit to learn about that mindset. And, 
Mm, yeah, man, your project managers, you know, they're actually might need to understand a little bit of the work that's going on that uh, the people that are surrounding that that are doing. So, you know, I think at its core, you know, DevOps is a great principle in that, you know, it's just going to be, let's bring everybody to the table and everybody is actually going to attempt to have an understanding of what everybody else is doing. So it's kind of like that magical, uh, you know, morning standup or afternoon standup. Um, but people actually are going to get something out of it. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I think, uh, came across an interesting uh, slide deck on quote unquote DevOps demystified. And it's probably the, one of the better ones I've seen just because it's not, uh, it's not saying, Hey, you need this specific tool or you need this specific product. Uh, it always kind of cracks me up when I see someone say, Oh yeah, we sell DevOps. And I'm like, mm, do you? So yeah, it's a kind of interesting thing, but their, their core behind it was, you know, like you said, DevOps is a collaboration of people. So, hey, we're talking to each other. Um, it's a convergence of process. Hey, we're all trying to work and do this together instead of, you know, going off down our own little ways. Um, and then creation of an, <coughs> creation and exploitation of tools, which, uh, you know, is again kind of that, uh, that thing that needs to actually be done. But uh, they also depicted like a support flow. So like, how does the, the flow of work actually work? And to me, I just, I laugh at it cause I look at it and I go, uh, this is how you should be doing work anyway, where, you know, you have requirements that are handed off to devs who go and create whatever tool it is that handed off to ops to go do testing on it, um, to put it into service, to hand it off to customers for customers to go and say, yep, we like it. Or, Hey, could you add this enhancement? And they put a new requirement in. So I just, I thought it was funny looking at that and going, uh, yeah, that's kind of common sense, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's amazing that everybody needed a book to teach them common sense, right? Uh, you know, book smarts and street smarts at its finest. Yeah. But it's like, uh, it's like they always say, uh, yeah. Um, common sense isn't very common. No, no, not in the DevOps world. Mm. Well, uh, maybe someday. Somehow, somewhere, we too shall be DevOpsy. Someday, but not not today, because we're going to stop now. All right.